So a couple of minutes ago I asked you to look over chapter 2 to remind yourself of the tale uh, that we've met a few weeks ago uh, in this book of Daniel. Um, That's because although we're looking at chapter 7 today, the book that we're working through is not just someone's diary. We should realise it's very unlikely that Daniel sat down and wrote this as his life unfolded. The timeline doesn't work like that within the book for a start. But then it's not clear that Daniel is even the author of this book. He's certainly not always the narrator. Chapters 7 and onwards may have been written by him, but they may have been recorded later after he had passed his verbal account of his visions onwards. Very likely, what we've got here originally started as separate texts which were then deliberately assembled into a coherent narrative to make a point. And it's important that we realise that. When you've got a curated text like this, the, the order that things are presented, the arrangement, the language that's used, the choices of what to include, all matter. They're part of a message. So, for example... In the original, the book of Daniel is in two different languages. Chapters 1 and chapters 8 onwards are in Hebrew, the language of Israel. Perhaps that indicates that their message is aimed internally to the people of God. Maybe not. Chapters 2 to 7 are in Aramaic, which at Daniel's time was a, a more international language. Maybe more accessible to outsiders. As we saw last week, chapters 2 to 7 are a set of historical court stories which have been deliberately put together to make a chiasm. A set of parallels that build up to emphasise the point in the middle. They showcase the utter sovereignty of God over human rule, which we see in chapters 3 and 4. And his ability to redeem or tear down, and his ability to secure his people against any foe, and the glory of his name and his rule over any other. That is the central message of the book of Daniel. But then, the second half of the book goes into a completely different genre. So it becomes apocalyptic, prophetic writing, which for Westerners today is an unfamiliar and awkward genre to work with. Um, If you've not met it before, apocalypse just means unveiling, revealing of truth. And the idea is that using symbolic language and dream imagery, they depict a truth about what's really going on in the world. They they peel back the curtain so we can see what's underneath. And in glimpse something of the future of God's exiled people. Chapter 7 for tonight is the bridge between the two. So it's in the language of the chiasm section and it sits as a mirror to chapter 2 but it also then sets up the visions that we'll be looking at over the next few weeks. Let me read it for us. Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. 
I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. After that in my vision at night I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancients of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the ancients of days came and pronounced judgment in favour of the holy people of the Most High and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns of ten kings will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. 
Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale. But I kept the matter to myself. Ouch. Just do a quick comparison of that with chapter 2. So, back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was given a vision of the future of his kingdom. He was told it would fall. And there would be a succession of three great human kingdoms after his before they were finally toppled and crushed by a power that he could not understand. So, Nebuchadnezzar's Chaldean kingdom was the glorious gold head of the statue. But it would be succeeded by the less glorious silver head and arms, which seemed to represent the dual rule of the Medes and Persians. Um, Note that chapter 7 is still set sometime before that happens. This is in the first year that Belshazzar becomes crown prince, before Darius the Mede takes over in chapter 6. Then Nebuchadnezzar sees a more debased empire again, the belly and thighs of bronze, which seem to refer to the Greeks, and then an even worse, more debased iron and clay fourth empire, which gets a bit harder to identify. It may be the Romans, it may be the Seleucids in Syria. We don't know for sure. But for the pagan Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, those kingdoms are identified in terms of material, what they're made of. Perhaps it's a reference to their kinds of gods, to to what he thinks rules, or or perhaps it's a reference to the value that men will attribute to them. But ultimately, those kingdoms are toppled by a rock not carved by human hands. A rock which grows into an earth-filling mountain. And in chapter 2, the point of the vision to Nebuchadnezzar is, is revealed in verse 44. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. And old Nebuchadnezzar is worried and humbled by the message. Now here in chapter 7, we have a parallel vision. But this time it is not given to a pagan king. This is not given to Belshazzar, the current ruler. He will not humble himself before the Lord. Rather, this is given to Daniel, a faithful Israelite. And so it's got slightly different emphases for us to see. I think we can cut it up into three chunks. They're marked by the phrase, In my vision at night I looked. You can see that in verse 2 and verse 7, and verse 13. And then, what's really nice about the apocalypse in Daniel, is is that we're given some explanation, which takes up the second half of the chapter, so we can be pretty clear about the meaning, and the message behind these revelations. If only St. John had done the same. So the first chunk of the vision, um, verses 2 to 6. I looked, and what did I see? Um, we see the first three of four great beasts emerging. And we're told later on in verse 17 that these beasts represent four kingdoms that are going to rise. 
And they fit really well with the kingdoms that Nebuchadnezzar sees. So the first beast is the most noble, it's the lion, and presumably it represents the Chaldean empire of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. The, the golden head of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. After it, we get this second weird bear which has been raised up on its side. And, and that seems to be the Medes and the Persians. And we can do a lot of work if we want to, interpreting the detail. Maybe the ribs in the mouth represent the fact that they, they never quite assimilated and digested the lands they conquered. But I'm not sure how far we can go within this evening and within my expertise. So let's not try. And the, the third, the leopard... Well, given some of the symbolism later, it's pretty clear that this is the Greek kingdom. Its four wings may be a hint at the startling speed at which Alexander the Great conquers the world. About seven years, essentially. And there have been whole libraries of books exploring the details of these visions, matching them up with historical events. I'm not sure that we can do much of that. I'm not sure that the symbolic language here is meant to be tied down so precisely. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is to show us underlying principles instead. So first of all, just notice some things. Notice that whereas to Nebuchadnezzar these kingdoms were presented as a statue worked in precious metals, the pride of man... To God's people, they're presented as beastly, abominations. And they would be ridiculous if they weren't terrifying. Notice that they rise out of the sea in verse 2 and 3, churned up by the winds. And then think of Genesis and Daniel's framework of thinking. Genesis, where God's ordered word over the waters generates creation. It's as if these are manifestations of disorder in the world. Rule without reference to God, rather than his ordered creation. And notice that although these beasts don't seem to be aligned with God's kingdom, nonetheless they are given authority. They are put in place. They are not truly sovereign. So verse 4, the the lion is granted a human mind. The bear in verse 5 is raised up and commanded to eat. The leopard in verse 6 is given authority to rule. And I suppose a picture begins to come out of how believers can see the kingdoms of the world in scripture. Not as ideal rule, they are beastly, often horrible. But they have been raised up or knocked down under God's sovereignty. It's the consistent message from Daniel's book. The Lord reigns. It's because of that overarching picture of God's sovereignty that Daniel is not betraying his principles by serving a pagan king. He can live in Babylon and serve there knowing that the Lord puts him there. And so he serves faithfully. Or similarly, in the New Testament, Christians aren't commanded to overthrow pagan rule. Rather, they're told to live peacefully as exiles in a foreign land and submit to the authority that the Lord has put over them, knowing that in his time, that authority will wax and wane. The second chunk of the vision comes in, verses 7 to 12. 
And there we get this fourth horrible beast set up in contrast to the core of the chapter, the central bit, the true authority in heaven. Opinion there is a bit divided, to say the least, on which historical empire this beast matches. It could be the Seleucid dynasty in Syria, they were a nasty lot. It could be Rome. And as history has progressed, theologians have tied this to their enemies. So so Protestants have said it's the papacy. Reformers have linked it to Islam. If you were in the morning service a a few weeks ago, you'll have heard Ida Glazer talking about how some American theologians and Muslim scholars are, are currently seeing each other in Daniel's prophecies. Again, I'm not sure that's the point. I don't think we can pin it down to an exact set of historical or future circumstances. My hunch is the initial fulfilment happened back with the Romans or Seleucids, but the pattern then probably applies to human rule in general from then on. But again, we can see principles being revealed. So, spot first. Verses 7 and 8. This unspecified demonic beast is horrible. It is terrifying and frightening to Daniel. It crushes and it devours and it tramples. This is the only one of the beasts which is not raised up or given authority explicitly. Rather, I think this is a picture of a rule that steadfastly sets itself against God, against his people. It has these many horns which represent probably different leaders and one of them speaks boastfully in verses 8 and 11. Daniel is upset by this, it seems. I think that indicates a tendency to boast that it is greater than or does not need God. Daniel is fixated on, fascinated by this beast. In verse 19, did you notice that when he receives his explanation, this is the bit he wants to know more about. It's different. It's terrifying. And as he was watching, he saw it waging war on his people, defeating them in verse 21. Notice how this beast has utter contempt for and disregard for its victims. That's certainly been true in of a lot of empires through history, including our own. Notice, though, that central to this passage, for all of its strength, this beast is defeated before it begins. Here is, I think, the big distinction between Nebuchadnezzar's vision and Daniel's. Nebuchadnezzar only gets to see this perplexing mountain. As a faithful believer, Daniel is shown almost the fullness of the promise to come. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The courts were seated and the books were opened. And it's a description of a mighty king sitting in judgment. Any eastern potentate would have pomp and splendour and attendance if they sat in court. But this king has more. 
Curiously, more than one throne is set out. And later we see who that second throne is for. But in the meantime, this king's described for us. He is the Ancient of Days. So not a symbolic beast that rises and falls, representing the, the spirits behind the dynasty. It's a single <coughs> continuous ruler through time. His clothing and hair, white as snow and wool. And the idea there is purity and the wisdom of age. His throne is bright like a furnace and wheels so that it can come and go throughout his domain. Think of the vision of God's throne in Ezekiel chapter 1. And a river of fire flows out before him. And I wonder if that's the water of life. But shown in the context of God's holiness, it's destructive, terrifying. In Deuteronomy 4.24, Israel is told, The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And the idea is that his holiness will burn up anything that is corrupt or evil. This is the Psalm 97 God, before whom the mountains melt like wax. Any king has courtiers, but this one has thousands in attendance on him, and a hundred million people gathered before his throne. And the court is seated, and the books are opened, and nothing can escape this king's justice. Nothing can upset his rule. And so, of course, the, the, the beast that has terrified Daniel and waged war against the saints is utterly destroyed. And this has been the consistent message throughout Daniel. The Lord is sovereign. He rules in heaven. Which is why it's then a bit striking that in his vision here, God feels the need to go a bit further. In verses 13 and 14, the last segment, a new kingdom is shown. And what do we see? We see one like a son of man arriving in the glory of heaven. A new kingdom is envisioned under the sovereignty of God, but this one represented as fully human, not bestial. This one like a son of man is led right into the presence of God. And it seems he's given one of the thrones from verse 9. And he's given all authority and glory and power. And his kingdom includes all nations, not just one, and all tongues. And he receives their worship. And his domain will persist in eternity. This passage is somewhat troubling for Old Testament scholars. They linked the extra throne of verse 9 with the coming son of David, but the way he's then put on the same level as the Ancient of Days is troubling, it's almost blasphemous. And yet again, the book of Daniel is pointing us forward hundreds of years to Jesus, isn't it? And understandably, Daniel is confused. So he asks for explanation and clarification from what is presumably an angel stood there with him. Look at the summary of the dream in verses 17 and 18. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. 
And Daniel asks for more detail about that horrible fourth beast. And he's told, yes, this thing is going to oppress your people for a time. Look at verse 25. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a long time. But the court will sit in verse 26. The beast will be vanquished and all sovereignty under heaven will belong to the holy people. His kingdom will be everlasting. This is the end of the matter. It's great news. Comfort for Zion. The Lord's kingdom is going to be established. All other rule will be vanquished. Justice will be done. And Israel, the Lord's people, are to have an enduring kingdom into which the peoples of the world will finally be brought. They will finally manage to live out the promise given to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through them. It's fabulous. So why is Daniel so upset? I think that's the mystery of this passage. Do you see how scared he is by this demonic beast in verse 7? Do you see how it's this beast that preoccupies him? It's not the throne in heaven. It must have been wonderful for him to see that vision. Thrilling to then see one like a son of man led into the presence of God to rule forever. But glorious though it is, that news is actually old hat for Daniel. For any faithful Jew. We've seen throughout the book, Daniel knows his Redeemer lives. He knows the Lord is sovereign. He's never shown any doubt of that. He knows the Lord will not let his people languish in exile forever. He knows the promise of Deuteronomy 30, that when his people repent, the Lord will call them back to the very ends of the earth. Daniel knows that one day, one day, Messiah will come. Sure, it must have been wonderful to see the end of this vision. But look at the overall effect on him. Verse 7, the beast was terrifying and frightening and powerful. Verse 8, while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another, he was preoccupied. Verse 11, I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking. Verse 19, then I wanted to know the meaning of this fourth beast. Verse 28, I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Daniel is not exalted by this vision. His face is not radiant like Moses' was after encountering God. And later in the book we'll see similar language. Other visions leave him appalled beyond understanding and speechless and mourning. And so maybe we ask ourselves, why so serious, Daniel? You've just seen that the future is brighter than you can possibly imagine. The Lord reigns. His kingdom will be established. And right at the end of the book we get a hint of resurrection. Now Daniel, I think, knows that he's going to have a part in that. So why so troubled? 
I think it's because, although the future is brighter than he can imagine, the present's darker than he realised. Perhaps Daniel is simply shaken and unsettled by the horror of his vision. As the apocalypse is given to him, as the true nature of the world is unveiled for him to see, and he sees the spiritual truth of the world he lives in and what's to come. And he sees the boastful degradation of the human empires around him. And he sees the way that this fourth kingdom, which is vile, which has this horrible spirit that will rule in the world, and how it will crush and devour its people, trampling the weak and vulnerable, boasting and making war against God's holy ones, rejecting what is right and pure instead of building up good things. Perhaps it is spiritual horror at what's around him. Or perhaps he's appalled because of a more immediate concern. (coughs) Commentators point out that the, the initial message of this passage to Daniel and his fellow exiles is bad news. As faithful Jews living in exile, they will be praying, Lord, bring us back, restore your nation, Israel. But look at what he's told. Yes, there there will be a glorious kingdom. The son of David will come. Not in your lifetime. Not even that of your grandchildren. There are going to be four other great kingdoms first. And it's going to get worse and worse. And the fourth will grind the people of God down. Oh Israel, do not expect to return from exile to solve your problems. I think Daniel's probably shaken by a combination of those. Historical implications for his people and spiritual horror of what he's seeing. The Lord reigns, the future is bright. But for now? So before we end, I should ask that other question. What about us? What, what do you take from a weird passage like this? Two things. I think the first is to say that along with the rest of Daniel and so much of the Old Testament, we have the immense privilege of seeing much more. This set of prophecies to Daniel have had their initial and primary fulfilment. Those four beastly kingdoms, I think, have been and gone. And the reason I can say that is because I think that the fifth kingdom has happened. Verse 13 and 14 are fulfilled. They're they're past tense. One like a son of man has come. The kingdom of heaven has begun to break through into this world. And yes, there is this now and not yet sense to that. But victory has already been clinched. Look at verses 13 and 14. I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. And then remember Acts chapter 1. And the risen Lord Jesus ascends to heaven in clouds. Or Matthew 28 verse 18, and the risen Lord tells his disciples, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Or from our morning services at the moment, Colossians 1 and the supremacy of the Son of Man who rules now. 
So brothers and sisters, Daniel is told in verse 18, the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever, and that has been achieved. Guaranteed at the cross and at the resurrection, a sure and certain inheritance for Christ's people, which is held for us. As the song goes, Satan and his pretended throne have been swallowed up in victory. The beasts are defeated. There is immense reassurance for Christians in the message that the Lord reigns. It's fitting then that later we will fix our eyes on his throne and his kingdom and we will worship him. In a few minutes, the songs of praise will do that. The future is brighter than we can imagine. But I wonder if, like Daniel, we also need to take note. The present may be darker than we realise. Anyone among us who has been a believer for some time can testify that conversion does not bring an end to sin. We continue to struggle, right? That's at best. Most of the time I just continue to fail and give in to temptation. It's much easier. The simple truth is that it's a long, tough road ahead. You are going to continue to struggle and stumble through sin until the day that you die. On top of that, you're going to face active opposition from the world. We have a place won for us in the heavenly kingdom of the Son of Man, but until then, we are strangers and exiles in a world which follows this beastly pattern. Verse 25 should remind us that God's holy people will face true hardship. Deliberate opposition. Casual contempt. But maybe we should go beyond that and remember that there is a spiritual aspect to that opposition. In John chapter 14, Jesus refers to attack coming from the prince of this world. 1 Peter 5 verse 8, believers are warned of genuine attack from Satan who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for people to devour. Educated Westerners often tend towards a reductionist view of the world and of people. We lose sight of and we dismiss that spiritual realm. We dissect and explain individual and group behaviour in terms of scientific principles and rational and emotional decisions and, and psychology and economics. Humans are bad enough viewed like that, nasty little evolution machines. But the Bible doesn't treat us in such reductionist terms. Biblical authors have no qualms at all about referring to fundamental spiritual forces. God's people like Daniel are ministered to by angels. Those who reject God are not free agents, but they're spiritually enthralled to other powers. I think that's why Daniel can see a beast-like quality to a whole nation. It's the ruling spirit of the people. Without getting over-fascinated by the occult, that's dangerous. But I, I wonder what difference it would make to our lives and our worldviews and the way that we pray if we thought more about the spiritual forces at work now. <coughs> The stuff that the Bible treats as real, but veiled from our eyes. How would a conscious awareness of that change the way that you pray for your community? 
or your nation or your world affairs? What, what difference would it make to the passion with which we cling to our faith? If we thought about and were sensitive to the, the desperate spiritual conflict which is going on around us. The, the fact that the enemy, the spirit of the world, does rule in the hearts of so many around us. And his rule is not generous. He is vicious and destructive and cruel and inimical to God's people and the gospel. You know, the throne of heaven, it's only really a comfort if we need comforting. It's only good if we see how awful the world is without that rule. Of course, we... We have to be careful. I've not received an apocalypse. I don't want to make bold claims about where spirits were at work. But we can see the principle laid down here. We can be on guard and we can emulate Daniel. He's upset and concerned by it, not blithely confident. But we can see throughout the book that his response is consistent, penitent, confident prayer. To the Lord who truly rules. Let's do that now.